Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Peter Ho Davies, author of the craft book, The Art of Revision. I think I might even occasionally joke the treasure buried in that messy teenager's room. Who knows, maybe it's a joint somewhere buried under piles of clothing in certain ways. There's a discovery to be made, though, I think. We'll be back with Peter Ho Davies after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. 
I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Peter Ho-Davies, author of three novels, including The Fortunes, The Welsh Girl, and A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself, and two short story collections. Davies' work has been longlisted for the Booker Prize, has been finalist for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and LA Times Book Prize, among other recognitions. He teaches at the University of Michigan. His new book, The Art of Revision, is a book on craft that interrogates the mystery and necessity of revision. Through personal story, literary examples, and philosophical questions, Davies uncovers insights about revision that can help all writers advance their understanding of this imperative aspect of craft. We began with Peter Ho Davies sharing why revision interests him. Oh, you know, I think um, it's because it's the fun one for me, right? It's the exciting one. It's where everything kind of comes together. Um, You know, I I talk a little bit about revision in the book as... um, you know, a revelatory process, right? That it's that feeling as we're moving through a story, maybe towards that kind of uh, much sought after paradisical state of doneness for the story eventually, that somewhere along that journey and towards the end of it, there's a moment um, really of epiphany, of a kind of understanding why we wrote our own story, understanding what our own story meant, I think, in certain ways. Um, Oddly, I think it's not an accident that a lot of stories, a lot of novels, a lot of short stories move towards revelation or epiphany, because I think um, that's what writers do as they work their way through a story as well, the way moving into that space. And I think often our characters reflect that as well. And you're talking about epiphany really for the writer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it happens to be there for the character as well. uh, And I think often we seek it out for characters. But I do think for the writing process, too, it's a journey of understanding our work. So I think there is a moment of revelation for writers, too, late on in the process where we recognize something. Um, And I think it's also, you know, when we speak about all the other um, writing craft skills and elements of technique that we learn, um, you know, and those are all interesting and exciting to me. I do think it's worth suggesting, and I and I thought into this quite a bit for the book, that um, it's easy to think of revision as essentially uh, just a, an amalgamation of learning all of those other craft skills, that we bring them all to bear in the revision process, and so that revision is just a catch-all description for everything else we've learned and might apply in a story. Um, but I am inclined to think that Revision is a skill in itself, and it goes a little bit beyond simply applying all the other lessons that we've learned in various ways. Um, And so there's something larger um, to it as a process than simply adding together all the other skills and craft elements that we've learned. Yeah, one of the things you say in the very beginning is that revision is the sum of what changes and what stays the same and and the alchemical reaction between them. And what I was thinking about as you explain more and more, because this idea comes up, first I thought about the universe, how I think we used to think it's always expanding and contracting, and now we know it's always expanding 
I believe. I'm no physicist. And then I thought about, okay, that doesn't work. So how about like baking a cake at altitude where I bake the cake and then it expands and then I take it out and it kind of sinks, but it, it usually turns out pretty good. I was thinking about that with revision, that it's, it is this process of adding and taking away and adding and taking away. Yeah, and I think that's a really important way of thinking about it. Um, you know, I, I was a physicist in a former life, although I don't claim to myself to be too up on my cosmology at this point, and uh, not a baker, so also not a, not a great person to speak into that question. But I am a great believer in revision um, as about a process, not just of subtraction, which I think is often how we think about it when we focus too much on editing. We often think about taking things away. It's often a, t a way that people think post-workshop of just taking out the things that don't work. But I really do think of it as a process of uh, addition and subtraction. The way I have to think about it is that it feels like a draft, an ongoing story or a novel is alive in a way, and it breathes out and it breathes in. And I like that idea of expansion and contraction and maybe a few cycles of that, I think. One of the things that you talk about is that some writers love the creation and some people love the revision and not that revision isn't creation because it is deep creation. And you said, um, one of my favorite lines was, you know, like if you're a kid and you have to go clean up your room, that you don't want to clean up your room. But what if there was a buried treasure in the mess? Yeah, exactly. I, I, I do feel, I think the example I, I use is sometimes when I assign revision uh, to some of my younger undergraduates, I do feel like I'm assigning a chore to them. So I do feel like mom saying, come and tidy up your room. And I think that goes back to the ways we've often been taught about revision in middle school and in high school, that it feels often, you know, grammatical. It feels like it's cleaning up something in various ways. All the exciting stuff is done first, and then we're just doing the chore type activities. Um, and so this is just a way of breaking into that space a little bit. I think I might even occasionally joke the treasure buried in that messy teenager's room. Who knows? Maybe it's a joint somewhere buried under piles of clothing in certain ways. There's a discovery to be made, though, I think. And I think that's a way of changing the, um, the sense that somehow revision is something that other people make us do and it's moving towards a set goal of something that's tidy and clean and it allows this room for discovery along the way as well. I think part of the conundrum of all that is uh, kind of what you were saying earlier is that we can only, you write that we can only decide best how to tell our story when we know it, but we can only know it by first telling it, which, which essentially means that we might have a glimmer of the story and everyone's kind of along the different spectrum of how much they know. But that the first draft is a process of discovery and that you have to go through that process of discovery. But then once you do it and you go back to look at it because you know it so much better, the revision can be a wholesale rewrite. And that can be really daunting and even stop people from ever even going to the page. Yeah, I mean, you're touching on a couple of things there. I think um, it's one of the reasons why I like to think about our, what we know about a story or our intent for a story, where we think it's going. I like to think of that as a hypothesis in certain ways. It feels less fixed that way. It also feels like the draft is going to test that hypothesis in various ways. And in particular, you're leaning into what I think of as a real bootstrapping problem when we write novels, a kind of circular um, paradox, this idea that we have to, uh, we have to tell it to know it, 
but we also have to, um, you know, make some assumptions about how best to tell it at the outset. And those assumptions feel like they're, they're hypotheses, and we're going to, in a sense, put revise them or test them as we move through the course of writing the novel, I think, as well. Um, so that feeling that we often have as we move through a novel, especially, where it takes us a while to get to the end, where sometimes we feel like, wait a minute, it's not working anymore. It's often a sense that the way we've chosen to tell it, the hypothesis of how we might choose to tell it initially, is running into some difficulties. Maybe we feel like, oh, I need to tell it from a different point of view, or I need to introduce another point of view to be able to help me tell the novel as I go forward as well. So there's all of those qualities that I think, you know, maybe speak into what often feel like really individual frustrations when we're working on a longer project, but I think um, are actually fairly universal. And so sharing them, I think, helps us to survive them and overcome them, I think, as well. One of the challenges as you go through this path of discovery, when you start to revise, and revise doesn't necessarily mean the second draft. It could be the third, the fourth, it could be the eighth, the 50th, um, that when you insert new things, it can disrupt the structure and the framework. And that can also be really terrifying and something that could be ruinous. So there are lots of these traps, right? That's one of the reasons we fear revision. It's one of the reasons why I think um, there are barriers to entry into revision for many of us along the way as well. And so a lot of what I'm trying to think about are ways to reformulate those anxieties, to see them as positives rather than as negatives. You know, so there is that feeling, I think, that often as we change something in a story, uh, maybe even fix something in the story. It feels like we've taken one step forward, but when we've made that change, it ch creates a couple of new questions, right? So you can feel like one step forward and two steps back. But I think that complication in a story, while it might push us uh, or seem to push us further away from completion, is also a way of opening up new possibilities, which is to say new depths, new richness, new densities, new textures in a story, which I think are all ultimately to the benefit of the work going forward as well, I think, in various ways. So you can see that, I think, in a different light as a kind of progress. One thing to remember, I think, is, of course, that um, every draft, apart from the very final one, is one that's going to point into the next draft and the need for a next draft in various ways. And you could almost argue that a successful revision is one that requires another revision. It's one that's opened up new possibilities and new questions in the draft and asks us to move forward, I think, in some ways as well. The, um, the thought about the, the, the kind of high tariff of entry into revision, I, one useful thing I, I hope it's useful that I say to students a lot of the time is that sometimes post a workshop conversation or when any of us have had a lot of feedback from a trusted critic or reader, it often feels as though there are just so many things to address that we don't know where to start. So one of the difficulties, I think, is simply that sense of maybe trying to do everything in one draft rather than doing a few of the things we might try and address in a single draft. Um, but also that feeling if I'm not quite sure how to prioritize this. And so fairly simple advice, but I think it's a useful way of getting us past that initial block where revision is concerned is to, on the one hand, take on the easy things, right? The things we know we can fix, the things we agree with instantly. And those are often fairly small things, but it does feel as though we get to um, progress the draft, move it forward. It's good for our morale. In a way, we're also repossessing our own work, even if it's been handled by lots of smart readers thinking into that space. We're repossessing it and moving it forward beyond the version that they've seen. But the second thing I tend to suggest to folks is that rather than think about all the things we should do or the things that people are asking us to do, that chore feeling that we can sometimes feel where revision is concerned, 
is to do the things that excite us, the things that seem like fun to us, the thing that would be most interesting to write into in this next draft. And that might be something playful. It might not necessarily be tackling the most urgent problem in the story, at least as identified by critics of the workshop. But I suspect that intuition of what's exciting uh, to us in a draft as we go forward is often a way to make those discoveries, that feeling there's something here, there's something I'd like to explore, something I'd like to write into. It feels like uh, our sort of writing intuition identifying a space of energy in the story as well. Yeah, and and that t- that takes a certain amount of stamina, I think, to like re-enter. And something that you talk about in the book is, oh... Oh, the dear writer's tender feelings, you know, that that it can be a morale bust just to go in or it could be a morale bust once you go in and you've torn something apart so much that there's this real emotional element to this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I really do think that we struggle with these questions. It's partly out of... um, partly out of impatience, right? Um, we want to be finished. You know, we uh, we claim to like writing, but most of us, I think, probably prefer to have written rather than to be in the process of it, which is a little painful to us. So we're often seeking out endings, seeking out that feeling of being done, but sometimes a little prematurely. Um, I really like that Flaubert line that talent is long patience. It suggests that we all need to be able to hang around and endure some of the uncertainties of a draft uh, for a little longer than we might imagine, I think, in certain ways. There's also I suppose, um, a kind of writerly metabolism at work here. I sometimes make the distinction that um, there are some short story writers who feel as though they are sprinters in a way, and there are some novelists who feel like they're marathon runners in some sense. But you could also maybe take that metaphor and apply it to the revision process. I think often with first drafts, we are in a hurry right? We're trying to, as I, I think I say in the book, sort of build a bridge across the chasm of our own self-doubt. The image that comes to mind is, um, you know, some cartoon character like Wiley Coyote running off the edge of a cliff. And if he runs fast enough and doesn't look down, maybe he gets to the other side, right? We get across that chasm of our own doubt about, can we finish this draft? And I think one of the things that we're all in a kind of horror of uh, with the first draft is that feeling of, oh, if I only get halfway, what if the idea sort of dies on me or dries up on me in some ways? It's not then that we have something. We essentially have nothing. We haven't completed even a very rough or rickety first draft. So we're eager, I think, and try to go very fast to get to the end of something. And that works pretty well with stories, somewhat less so with novels, where that speed still might mean that we take months or years to get through a first draft, I think. Um, But after getting across that chasm, after running very fast to the finish line, you know, and you can often see, I think, in early stories, early drafts of stories, you can almost see the writer rushing their ending. They're like a runner who's dipping for the tape at the the finish line in certain ways. Once we've got there, though, maybe we can slow down a little bit. Maybe we can have a little bit more patience. So it's almost as though our sprint of the first draft can give way a little bit more to the patience in later drafts along the way as well. So we also have to shift our metabolism just a little bit in those regards. What has your experience been? I know you mentioned in in this book, I think one of your novels took you about nine years to write. And I think that we change over time and that who you are when you went to the page one, even in the first draft, wasn't who you were at the end and the last page of the first draft and nine years might've been, you might've just been working on one section. I don't know the exact details, but I find sometimes that mood can affect, you know, how you write. Maybe you come to the page, as you said, excited about the story one day 
and then you think it's crap the next. And that mood, I think, comes out in the writing. So how do you approach that? I think in a way we have to sort of embrace that, that the novel, and you're right, at least a couple of mine have taken between seven or eight years um, to write, and, and they've probably been at least nine or ten years in between uh, publications. Um, that we sort of have to embrace some of that, I think, build in the idea that there are going to be maybe more than one mood in this book and more than one idea. You know, we're looking, I think, across the course of a novel for a second wind, a third wind, a fourth idea that will keep us going forward. So there are lots of elements that play into these spaces. Um, recognizing them feels like the first step, right? So we can think about them and maybe use them to our own advantage in a narrative. Um, but I think there's there are ways, of course, that the world changes. We're all very conscious of that, maybe particularly so the last year or two um but that's been true for me going back um through novels you know my novel the welsh girl it's a historical novel it's world war ii it's about german prisoners of war being held uh in britain towards the end of world war ii i started it in the late um 90s but you know after 9 11 after we were invading other countries after we held prisoners of war at guantanamo or abu Ghraib, the way we think about questions about the treatment of prisoners of war changed for me, I think, in various ways. So the times, the context in which we're writing can also revise the book. And that slowed the writing of the book down, I think, in some ways. But it also added a new kind of urgency and a new kind of energy and a new kind of immediacy to the writing of the book. And eventually, once I was able to embrace those things, I feel that that added to the richness and the complexity of the book in useful ways to me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know, when we're writing, part of that mystery of that, which which can sometimes maybe come out through mood and what we're tuned into that day, is the subconscious. And I, I remember being in workshops where people are like, why, why do you have this tangent? And sometimes it can just be one sentence long, like this is unnecessary. And then you really go into your story and you analyze it and you say, well, what is unnecessary? And then when you think about that, you could take away more than half the story. But you, you, you say that the things in our stories that we're unsure of or don't know why they're there are the exact things worth expanding on. And that relates to our subconscious. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, it's easy to cut the thing that feels unnecessary. Um, we can't quite justify it. Sometimes those questions arise in workshop. People are like, I'm not quite sure why this is there, why this image, why this moment, why this sort of what feels like a um, a distraction or a diversion in the plot. And so those, those, those things do feel easy to sort of lop off. Um, and yet... While that may end up being an ultimate choice for the revision, I think there's something to be said for thinking into those moments if we don't actually understand why they're there, because it does feel as though there's not a conscious intent there, but there may be a subconscious intent. So they feel like they're moments that's worth that are worth interrogating. So often what I think as we come out of you know, conversations in workshop or hearing back from critics is we're presented with certain choices about those kind of moments. We can take them out. Um, or we can at least think for a moment, what would it be like if I kept it and 
expanded it. Very often it means that those sort of subconscious moments have not yet really been thought into. But if we can begin to explore them a little bit further, we might find out what their real value might be in various ways. So I think there's often those places where we can make discoveries in the story. They're often really exciting, I think, in various ways. I think that's also what makes sometimes writing on the computer extra dangerous Um, and maybe also freeing, but you know, you have this candlestick in scene one and you go back the next day and you just delete it is kind of like that concept of, of, um, you know, following reality down one road, the candlestick is gone. And this other reality where you don't delete it, maybe you realize the next day that the candlestick is the murder weapon (laughs) and, and that you write about the technological advantages and disadvantages of revision. Yeah, I mean, what you're speaking to there, the, the, the missing of the invisible candlestick is a great example of this, right? Because I think there's a way in which, you know, that interrogation of a detail that we might not have a great deal of conscious intent around or conscious understanding about is essentially to say, and this feels fundamental to revision to me, it's built into the idea of re-seeing our work, that essentially those moments are ones we return to, not thinking about ourselves as the writer of that detail, thinking, oh, I meant this to mean X, but coming back to it as a reader going, what does this mean? As if we were reading somebody else's work in certain ways. So part of the activity here is rereading our work and trying to understand the things that we don't yet fully understand within it, I think, in certain ways. So if we cut those things too early, we lose that ability to read back into our work, I think, from time to time. Um, And as for the technological space we're in, I think it it adds lots of complexity, right, to the ways we think about revision, and maybe in certain ways, and I spend a good deal of time in the book sort of talking about the invisibility of revision in certain ways. It's an art that sort of kicks over its own traces, ultimately, I think, in various ways. But there is something to do with the way that um, the way that most of us work on a computer means that even the language that we use to talk about revision drafts, draft number one, draft number two, thinking about the various drafts, even that feels a faulty way of thinking into the revision process. If we work on a computer where we have a kind of sense of infinite draft, right? We're changing word here. Has that changed the draft? I'm not sure that it has exactly. Whereas if we uh, worked in a more old school fashion, you know, we were on a typewriter, we would have a pile of pages and that would be draft number one. And we'd have another pile of pages and that would be draft number two. And we'd actually literally have these physical spaces to look at, to distinguish the drafts in various ways. Um, so I think technology, I think, you know, encourages us sometimes to make more changes, which can be good, but sometimes can discourage us because sometimes on the computer screen, the work looks, you know, it looks very nicely typographically, it's set up, it's nicely right justified, it looks more polished and more finished than it might really be in certain ways as well. So there's a back and forth there. And I think it's interesting that a lot of writers um, try to change their relationship to the text to re-see it by shifting the mode in which they're writing it. Um, So I'm a big advocate for reading work aloud to oneself, um, which is maybe a sense not so much of re-seeing it, but re-hearing it, right? It's a feeling that we have of apprehending our work, not in the same way every time on the page, on the screen, but sometimes you know, embodying it through, a, you know, our, our, our reading experience of it, but also hearing it through a different sensory organ, I think in some ways changes our relationship. And there are writers who toggle between working at longhand, typing it up, going back to a longhand version. I'm sort of really interested in, I think it's Ann Tyler, I talk about a little bit in the book, she mentions this in one of her interviews, where she will, I think, read her manuscript into a dictaphone after that process as well, and then listen back to it. Um, and I do have a few students now who take advantage of the fact that I think in um, some word processing software, you can have the computer read your work back to you as well. And all of these things just 
allow us to see or apprehend the work in slightly different ways and often uh, in ways that shake up our understanding of the story just a little bit. I wish there was a program and maybe there is and you know about it or maybe some listener will where you can take the page of a draft and then a page of the later draft and lay them over one another and see what changed. Do you know of anything that does that? I guess you can probably see that in some of the um, uh, the uses of editing and comment and review features in Word, conceivably. My difficulty with that often is um, uh, when I look at those pages uh, in those functions, it, it, they are so scrambled, it's a little hard to disentangle the various things along the way. But I do think we can do uh, you know, a process where we, we print out a page and we look at another alternate page later on and think about those back, that back and forth in various ways. You know, and it's one of the things we can, um, you know, I'm a sucker for doing this um, in museums and libraries where they have displays of writers' manuscripts and looking into those kind of spaces. And I think it's often really eye-opening and actually very satisfying um, to recognize that other writers, you know, have done this. You can see all, all the lines drawn, all the crossings out, all the, um, you know, the circlings and underlinings and replacements that various other people have engaged in in various ways. And, and maybe there's a kind of misery loves company process to this. Um, but I think I mentioned briefly in the book, uh, you know, and actually my editor brought this detail to my mind um, that, you know, way back in the day before we could cut and paste in, in our manuscripts or even, you typewriter times do it with scissors and do it with um you know with tape pasting it into the pages this is lovely idea that jane austen used to pin alternate passages into her manuscripts you can still see the pinholes where she'd used you know a a, a needle or a pin to just ch add in a, a little bit of text in a place along the way as well so this goes back you know um for generations and we've all we've all been subject to this i think in various ways whatever the changes in technology how did you approach writing this? I think some of these were craft talks that you gave, but I got the sense from reading this that you had been working on this topic for a really long time because you had so many quotes from other authors. You'd listen to interviews like with Ann Tyler. You, you, you have a lot of other writers' processes or comments included in this. So how did you go about taking these lectures and putting them into a book? So we're thinking now about uh, the revision of the revision book, right? So we're getting pretty meta in this particular space. I like that, though. That's usually keeping what we're thinking about. Um, I had given um, a lecture on the topic, I think, in 2016 or 2017 at the Napa Writers Conference. Um, and, and I actually don't give a lot of craft lectures, um, but, I, but I'm always uh, happy and welcome the nudges that a conference like Napa or a conference like Breadloaf gives me to sort of produce one along the way. Um, and that lecture now, you know, serves as kind of like the... Um, the overarching sense of the book. There's material that's there in the epilogue and the prologue. What I've essentially done is expand uh, with a lot of different examples, the middle of that lecture and so stretch it out into, I think, a book along the way as well. Um, so that's sort of roughly the revision process um, for this book itself. But along the way, of course, um, 
I wanted to think about lots of different examples that I could bring to bear. I mean, I do um, draw upon my own experiences and talk about my own work, my justification being that relative invisibility of revision. Um, but there are, and I've occasionally used these with students in classes, there are examples of other people's revision processes out there that I sometimes share. So I'm drawing back into those spaces. Um, I wanted to make sure that this felt not just like my voice thinking into these spaces, but polyphonic. So I wanted to quote a lot of other folks thinking into that space as well. And writers talk about this quite a lot in interviews and the like. So there are a lot of good quotes out there to think into, I think, in these ways. Um, and then I also, I think, wanted to try and um, expand the definitions of revision a little bit more broadly. It's one of the reasons why I talk about, um, you know, those things that we are aware of around us, but don't always think of revision, even though I think they can actually provide useful examples. You know, I talk about even for the movie world, sequels and prequels, you know, reboots on TV, all of these are acts of revision, I think, in certain ways. They may be dumb in some ways and fun in other ways, but it feels as though it demystifies the revision process just a little bit. Um, something I've begun to do a little bit more in class, it's a little harder to do in the context of the book, but I do it sometimes in presentations, is um, also to play cover versions of songs, right? Which are a great instance of thinking how, well, this song... Uh, the lyrics are the same when performed by this performer or when performed by this performer, um, but the meaning of the song in a different context, depending on who's singing it, in different tempo, can change radically. And that does feel like it speaks interestingly into questions of revision, that small changes can shift the meaning. And I'm really interested in the idea of revision as a change of meaning in um, in our work as well. So, um, so there are, you know, that sense of, of examples is always, I think, um, expanding, and it's kind of fun to add more into that space. In fact, I'm going to teach a class um, next semester on the topic, and I'm probably going to be asking the students to do some presentations on examples of revision, loosely and broadly defined, that they have found and that excite them, and I'm hoping to sort of broaden our palette in those regards too. I think what's interesting about craft essays and craft books is that Probably years ago, I would have thought, okay, I'm going to read this book. I'm going to get a list of instructions. And I'm going to understand how to do it. But that craft pieces are more like, they're like think pieces. They're, they're kind of like philosophical tomes on these issues. They're not prescriptive. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in that regard, I'm inspired, um, by friends and mentors like Charles Baxter. I think Charlie's essays really feel, as though they address craft issues, but um, in deep, complex, surprising ways, they often have elements of personal experience and memoir built into them as well. So they feel um, as though I can read them even if the particular craft topic may or may not directly apply to some of the work I'm engaging in. They're just pleasures to read. And so I'm working towards that kind of um, that kind of model. And so here, you know, I think also because these books, these kind of craft essays are written by writers for writers, they inevitably invite a certain degree of um, personal narrative into that space as well. And partly because I was writing this book while I was writing my last novel, A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself, which also features kind of autofictional elements as a character in that, who's also a writer and teacher himself. There's a little overlap between those two spaces tonally, I suspect, for me in this book. And you bring in a, an anecdote from your life in this book that 
that both is in this book and that you've used in your fiction and that you've changed over time. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that actual story mm-hmm. and the yeah. idea. I mean, you kind of came to at the end that like the meaning maybe didn't change that much, but the actual story and details did. And I was just wondering if you would share more about what that story yeah. was. Yeah, I mean, if I, I would say that the details of it change uh, a fair bit uh, and through the various tellings maybe excavate different meaning within it. But I hope that by the end of the book, for me personally, I've sort of plumbed um, a deeper and essential meaning that I've not had not previously uh, thought into quite as much. The story... Um, you know, is is an episode, uh, an anecdote from my childhood. Um, I grew up in Britain, and I can recall a moment in the late seventies, I think, there, with my father in in my hometown of Coventry, just on probably a Saturday afternoon, going shopping maybe, and um, seeing some teenagers running through the streets. They were a little older than me; I was probably about eleven or twelve, uh, running through the streets towards us, and sort of not really comprehending the moment but realizing uh, slowly as it sort of unfolded before me that the teenager who was uh, leading what I thought was a race um, was a, a young man wearing a turban and the teenagers chasing him were skinheads. And this, of course, at a time in Britain where the National Front was on the rise, um, there was a lot of racial animus and tension, um, you know, in the country, but also in the city where I lived. You know, and we witnessed um, in a kind of stunned shock this poor Sikh boy being caught by these skinheads and the boot flying in. Um, and I think everybody on that street was in a state of shock, it, you know, busy Saturday shopping afternoon. This does not compute. We do not even know what this looks like. I don't even think people were calculating, should I intervene or not intervene because I'll get beaten up. I think people were just in a state of incomprehension. I know I certainly was. Um, and what sticks in the mind, especially is that my father was the only person on that street who sort of stepped into that space and pulled those skinheads off the boy. And luckily, um, he was able to intervene quickly enough that the boy was not too badly injured, um, at least physically. Um, and luckily also, as bullies are often wont to be when challenged, those skinheads ran off as well. Um, and so that moment has stayed with me, I think, through the years, as one might imagine it would, even though my father and I didn't much talk about it. Um, in the aftermath. And I think it was certainly in my mind when I was writing a um, a scene set in my novel, The Welsh Girl, set in you know, Germany in the 30s, where there's a witness to an attack uh, by Nazis on, um, on a Jew in the streets. And I was channeling something of that energy in that regard. Um, and unconsciously, I think I'm also probably thinking into that experience, you know, the witnessing of a racial attack in um, in my novel, The Fortunes, where I write a little bit about um, uh, the Vincent Chin uh, assault and murder. Um, and so it feels like this has cropped up in my narratives in the past. Um, what I think I've always thought is that the story is a negotiation with questions of bravery and cowardice. I suppose maybe my father's bravery on the one hand, and through my various other characters who are often observers and survivors, but also feel a certain degree of survivor guilt, a question of 
they didn't intervene. Should they have intervened? Do they feel somehow uh, as if cowardice has, has, has sort of overtaken them, I think, in various ways? And I think I probably felt that a little bit as a child, right? Here was a moment that I felt very proud of my father. But one of the things he told me afterwards, and of course, this is exactly what you would say to a, a young child in a moment like that is, you should not do this. You should not get involved in this. But it felt oddly like a rejection. The moment that I most wanted to be like my father, he was saying, you shouldn't do that. Um, and so that, I think, is why these questions of bravery and cowardice sort of inhabit those various retellings of the story. But, you know, what I realized um, in the last few years, um, you know, and this is probably in the context of some of the politics we've all been going through, I think, in various ways, but also has to do something to do with the time of life I'm in, I'm a father of a child myself now, um, that that warning of my father's and the way he was able to react wasn't just because, um, you know, he was a decent guy who had salt of the earth kind of values. It's because as the father of a mixed race child, he had anticipated that moment on the street befalling me. He'd seen it in his imagination. So that when it played out in front of our eyes, um, he was able to react first because he knew what it was. He recognized it in certain ways. Um, and that, I think, reminds me that this is not a story, as I've thought about it through my own fiction for years, um, of bravery versus cowardice. It's actually a story of my father's love for me. It's a story of our closeness, not this slight sense of distance that I think I felt that I might not be able to do what he did. Um, and it took me... Um, 40 years to come to that recognition, right? Partly in the writing of this book or the essay that I wrote that initiated the book. Um, and as I think I mentioned in the book, um, 40 years seems like a long time to revise something to come towards a meaning. Um, but for me personally, the profundity of that meaning means that it's very well worth it to understand that moment. And, you know, it was a a gift, albeit belated, to understand that um, before my father passed away. Um, and I think one of the times I've told this story was as his eulogy at, at, at the funeral. Um, so it's been, it's been, we want to get our stories right, particularly for those we've lost. And so that felt like part of that long process for me. I think what's so interesting about that is that we do have kind of obsessions in our lives and I think part of those obsessions are that we just keep searching for meaning or that we don't understand them and they can reveal themselves slowly over time. And even though the story doesn't change, like you're saying, the meaning does and we keep learning. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, those 40 years are necessary because I've sort of grown into the age that my father was when we saw that attack and I have a son of about my age um, when we saw that attack so the perspective has shifted right so again it's a revision because I can see that moment again from a different perspective um, in a way that I couldn't have done as a child and haven't been able to in the intervening years necessarily. So that story may or may not be done with you but at some point we have to be done with a manuscript and doneness is, it's not, you know, putting the thermometer in the turkey. How do you, you tackled this in your book, and I just wanted you to share a little bit about what you discovered that it meant and how you can sort of <laughs> grasp that thing, like get that manuscript out of your tightly balled fists yeah. to, to let it fly. So we're very caught up, I think, inevitably and understandably in the idea that doneness represents 
version of perfection, right? Everything is as polished as it can possibly be in various ways. Um, and I'm not sure that that's the goal that I envisage when I think about a story being done. I do think for me, it's about meaning and understanding and this sort of paradoxical idea that I know I'm done with the story when I finally understood why I wrote it in the first place, right? So there's that inkling, that hypothesis, I know what this is about and we're testing and understanding and deepening and complicating that understanding all the way through the revision process to hopefully come to a point where we go, ah, that's why it is this way. That's why it has to be this way. And for me, that means that the, the journey of myself as the writer along with the story has come very close to its ending because I now know what I need to know about that story. So the example I sometimes use is a um, oldest short story of mine called The Hull Case from my second book, Equal Love. It's, a, um, it's an alien abduction story, as it turns out, based on a, if one believes in such things, uh, true story, at least a true account of uh, an alien abduction took place in the 60s to a mixed race couple, white woman, black man, um, in New England, and as I say, in the 60s. Um, and I think that story interested me when I first came across it. Um, I have long, deep childhood roots in the fascination in science fiction, so that probably was one of the things. But I was also interested in thinking about writing into a mixed marriage, trying to think about writing about race, but do, doing so in ways that approach the subject um, in hopefully surprising and lateral ways to sort of free myself, I think, in, in certain ways. And um, as I wrote into the story, so I had an inkling that the story was about race and they're a childless couple. And so the you know, imagery of small gray aliens somehow seemed suggestive, I think, to me in various ways. But only very late on, after the whole story had probably been drafted, um, and it felt as though I'd revised it and changed it and polished it and brought it to a point where I was pretty satisfied with it. But only pretty late on did I recognize that much of the imagery that my uh, black character addresses as he's speaking about being taken to um, uh, to the alien ship. It's that sense of being bound, being led to a ship, um, being examined, the teeth, the genitals, bodily, all these kind of questions that it dawned on me uh, sort of belatedly as I think about it now, that so much of that imagery is the imagery of um, slave markets, the imagery of the abduction from Africa, it's the imagery of slave narratives in certain ways, in various ways. So I came up with a a kind of thought experiment or a recognition of the idea that a lot of our alien induction mythology feels as though it's a, a way in which our issues or questions about race have sort of gone underground and re-emerged in this sort of diffracted way through popular culture, I think, in certain ways. And at that point in the story, it felt as though that had always been there in the story, that it had taken me all the writing and revising of the story to recognize something that had always been inherent in the material, but that I had not been able to glimpse previously, I think, in some ways. That's that moment of epiphany or that moment of revelation where you finally understand this is what drew me to this story. This is actually what this story is about. But beyond that point, there's not that much revision for me. I think I changed maybe one or two details. I think there's a uh, there are trees full of snow that look like large white sails, a kind of acknowledgement, I think, of um, uh, of slave ships and slave narratives. Um, but that's as much as anything else, my own reminder to myself of what the story is about. It's a kind of acknowledgement of that. I'm not sure that every reader will necessarily perceive that. But I didn't feel the need to further revise the story because it felt as though my journey with it was completed, that I had finally understood what it was that I was about in the story. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how 
deeper and deeper meaning exists in so many things if we just take the time to look. And it takes patience, which is what you talk about, what we need for our drafts. Yeah, I mean, it's the hardest thing in the world, right? Um, and, you know, because revision can be painful and challenging, uh, our patience is always being tested, right? Um, you know, that's why I think we tend to rush certain things, why we tend to be in flight from making difficult choices that might complicate a story because we're lacking that sense of patience. And yet I do think one of the ways to think into it is that, um, you know, I have, um, I'm not sure this is in the book, but I have a sort of a pet theory about what I call Groundhog Day revision, that if we don't finally finish a story, get to that point of doneness, we may be destined or possibly even doomed to sort of repeat that story, right? So I sometimes see at the undergraduate level, very talented writers um, who, who recognize their talent in first drafts. And of course, one of the reasons that they are drawn to writing is often their first drafts are very good. Um, and But by that very token, a slightly resistant to revision, first drafts come more easily to them. So when you ask them to revise, um, often what you get back is a whole new story um, that maybe doesn't address the problems exactly of the first, but feels like it's just going to um, recapitulate some of the material of the first in a new story that has its own problems. And so this is sort of circular issue where we generate lots of new first drafts, some of which may still revolve around some of our shared obsessions and preoccupations without ever quite bringing any of those stories to completion, which means sometimes we get trapped in a little bit of a circle and a little bit of a loop, I think, in various ways, hence the Groundhog Day idea. I like, to the idea you brought in of Zeno's paradox. Sure. You want to explain yeah. what that is? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a tendency... So Zeno's paradox, you know, famously is, you know, the idea that if we shoot an arrow towards the target, after a certain amount of time, it's gone halfway, and after a certain amount more time, it's gone halfway further to the target, and halfway and halfway and halfway and halfway, and yet never quite, according to the paradox at least, arriving at the target. And I think it, that says something about the way we often feel about the endlessness of revision along the way as well. Um, the way I think into it a little bit is that I, I tend to think of revision often a draft by draft, uh, in many ways, is an act of calibration. Um, and there are lots of different ways we might think about that. One end of the spectrum is, oh, the story is a little too subtle, and the other end of the spectrum might be, oh, the story is too heavy-handed. Um, and somewhere between those two poles probably lies some notional sweet spot. It's, oh, obviously, this is a very reductive thought experiment, and that sweet spot will vary from writer to writer and, of course, from reader to reader as well. But somewhere between those poles is the place where we get the Goldilocks moment, where things are just right. Um, what tends to happen for most of us as writers, I think, is that we err on the side of too subtle. And it's something to do with a bias in the language, right? Too subtle doesn't sound terrible. Subtlety is good. Too much of a good thing. That's not the worst thing in the world. Heavy handed, on the other hand, just sounds bad, right? So we tend, I think, to have a bias because the biases in our language that leads us a little bit more towards the too subtle side of that spectrum. And in revision, the inclination is, well, my story is a bit is too subtle. I'll make it just a little bit less subtle. Still subtle, but maybe just a tiny bit less subtle. So we're creeping up always from one side of the sweet spot towards that notional point. That feels like Zeno's arrow. Halfway, 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 halfway. Sometimes I think there's real value in saying, well, I've undershot my target. I've fallen short on the too subtle side of my sweet spot. What would it be like if I wrote a heavy-handed draft? What if I went overboard? What if I go to the other side of that spectrum? And the advantage of that is that between those two drafts, the too subtle one and the heavy-handed one, you've 
I think then a little range finding. You know that the place you want, the Goldilocks space, the sweet spot, lies between that range. I think it's easier to help find it if you've undershot it and then overshot it. For the calibration purposes, it's a little easier to find that spot rather than just to continually creep up on it in these tiny incremental ways. So that's one of the things I often encourage people to do, to sort of work against our bias towards the too subtle and maybe occasionally take the chance of overwriting something because it'll help us find the place we need to find. Yeah, you also talk about in, in similar terms, sort of that balance between mystery and clarity. Yeah, and it's, again, again thinking into that sense of balance, as you say, and, uh, and calibration. And it does feel that we are often on the side of mystery. I think it's probably a manifestation of what's very natural. It's a kind of workshop anxiety. It's a lot easier for me um, to say of your criticism of my story, if your criticism is, oh, it's too opaque, I didn't understand it, I also get to say as the writer, huh, well, I guess you can't criticize it if you didn't understand it. So it's a self-protective device, I think, in various ways. And I like that at the end, you say that the mystery for you lies in the real world, that it lies in life, in human beings, not in the way the story has been written. And I, I took that to mean that deadness kind of has something to do not with the words on the page, but that the mystery that is transferred to the reader. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think we can get really caught up. Uh, I see this a lot in, in my own work, actually, but also in the work of um, the folks I teach, where we're very interested in creating mystery because we want the reader to keep reading forward. But sometimes that manifests as what I call informational mystery. We've held, we've held back key pieces of information, even though our point of view character quite often might know it, to draw the reader on as if it's like a trail of crumbs for a duck to follow or something along these lines. Um, but I think what's essential to me in the fiction is emotional mystery, this mystery that can't be broken down. Um, and often I think revealing the informational mystery earlier allows us to concentrate on the emotional mystery, the really essential one. And the last thing you, you wrote, um, one of the last things you wrote that I wanted to talk about was just this, this quote that was really beautiful. And you wrote, we're used to talk of climaxes, taking our breath away or making us catch our breath. But the right ending can also make us exhale, sigh with aesthetic satisfaction. Yeah, I mean... Isn't that what we're all looking for, I think, in a certain sense? I, I think it's the, maybe for me, the distinction, and this goes back, of course, to that sort of um, familiar, maybe slightly infamous idea of the story's arc, Freitag's triangle. Uh, climaxes feel like they take our breath away, but we have to remember there's something that goes beyond that point. And I think often in early drafts, we tend, to, when we think about a destination for a story, we tend to have in mind a climax. And I think we often, you know, in that, eagerness to be done with that first draft, that impatience. We stop very near that climax, but I'm often interested in sort of pushing beyond that, I think, into that space of exhalation as well. Can you read something that was written by another author that speaks to you or influenced you? Yeah, you know, I I thought this time I would read a little bit from Philip Larkin. Um, he's a, a troubled and troubling poet these days, but... Um, he went to my high school in Britain many years before me. And so the first time I think I was published, which is in like the school 
magazine. Um, there was also an interview with him published in that. So he's somebody that I've studied and, and, and thought into quite a bit. He's also, you know, written about my hometown, and I do a little bit of that in this book. So I'm going to uh, quote not the whole of, but a little bit from his poem, I Remember, I Remember, um, which is about our shared hometown. Coming up England by a different line for once early in the cold new year, we stopped and watching men with number plates sprint down the platform to familiar gates. Why Coventry, I exclaimed, I was born here. I leant far out and squinnied for a sign that this was still the town that had been mine, so long but found I wasn't even clear which side was which, from where those cycle crates were standing, had we annually departed for all those family halls? A whistle went, things moved, I sat back staring at my boots. Was that, my friend smiled, where you have your roots? No, only where my childhood was unspent, I want to retort, just where I started. You look as though you wished the place in hell, my friend said, judging from your face. Oh, well, I suppose it's not the place's fault, I said. Nothing like something happens anywhere. And uh, I think that passage is actually on a plaque at the railroad station in, uh, in Coventry. So I see, I see it, although maybe not the, uh, the slightly more, uh, slightly darker closing lines of that poem. Is there anything else you want to say about why you chose it? Um... No, I think it's, well, the new book explores something of those equivocal feelings we have about home. And I think uh, the poem speaks a little bit into that space as well. Can you read something you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Certainly tricky and hard. This is actually, I'm going back, since the book is about teaching, I'm going back to... Um, one of the early stories I wrote for um, uh, workshop, I think my very first semester workshop, which ended up as the title story of my um, first collection, The Ugliest House in the World. I'm just going to read the first two or three paragraphs, but then I, I have a little explication of that. Rellies are relatives, grumblies are patients, jerrys are geriatrics. Ash cash is the money you get when you sign a cremation form. A full house is when someone comes into accident and emergency with every bone in their arms and legs broken. I once saw a woman with a full house. She'd been fighting with her husband in the car and told him to stop. When he wouldn't, she opened the door and jumped out. Accident and emergency is called A&E. I did my last job in A&E, but I couldn't afford it, so now I'm working on a Jerry ward. Jerry's are the grumbliest grumblies of them all, but the ash cash from a job on Jerry's keeps me in food and drink all week, which means I can keep up the payments on my student loan. You don't get any money when they bury a patient because if they have any doubts about the cause of death, they can dig the body up again. But with cremation, someone has to take responsibility. That's what they pay you for. Fortunately, cremation is more popular with Jerry's by a ratio of three to one. Um, so that's the first um, few paragraphs of that story and this is a, a very short explication of that that I um that I actually wrote for a um uh for BU they were this is where I went to graduate school they were raising um some fellowship funds uh partly in the name of my former uh, uh graduate teacher Leslie Epstein this is the opening of the third story I wrote for Leslie Epstein's graduate workshop in the fall of 1992 
The first two, I should say, have been so roundly, and I must confess, rightly criticized by the class as a whole and by Leslie in particular, that I began to think I didn't belong in a writing program. I'd be better off packing it in. And perhaps because this third story felt like the last throw, the end of the line, because I was already half out of there, I suspect I let some of my resentment of the class and of Leslie into the work. Reading these pages now, that dry, brittle rage of the narrators, his precise definitional fury, well, it's his, the characters, I hope, but it's also surely mine, sick as I was of my earlier stories being misunderstood. Though, of course, they weren't misunderstood. They were confused, imprecise. And in this flash of anger directed, I thought at Leslie, though actually at myself, I'd taken my first step towards learning what he would teach me. For a couple of weeks there, I probably hated him. I hope I'm not telling him anything he doesn't already know. And I thank him for letting me. It's easy as a teacher to be loved. Easier on the teacher, that is. Far harder to live with a student's hostility. And while love teaches its own lessons, so it seems to me does anger. And so that story went on to be, I think, the first story I, I published in the US, got picked up for Best American Short Stories. Um, so there was uh, real value, I think, in being allowed to... Um, express some of that hatred and hostility from the class and particularly for my teacher. And I, I should say, I, I, I think I had dinner with Leslie um, uh, a couple of three years ago and uh, I've had a kind of love-hate relationship perhaps with that workshop over the years, um, but it was a very warm re-encounter and I have a great deal of regard for him as a, as a writer especially. Where do you write? Um, so I think when you asked me this question before, I said anywhere except where I'm supposed to. So not in the office, at the kitchen table, at the dining table. Uh, one thing I, 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 but I'm also going to say anywhere I'm alone. I came across this quote from Kafka recently that um, sort of enshrines that idea. Writing means revealing oneself to excess, he says. This is why one can never be alone enough when one writes. And so I'm always looking for a place where I'm alone to do it. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Probably the gym. I think I think less of it when I am uh, struggling with the cardio, particularly now in the mask as I'm exercising at the gym. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, my wife, who I met in that workshop. That would be the love part of a love-hate relationship. How have you dealt with rejection? <laughs> by uh, by expecting it primarily, but also by telling myself um, with regard to judges or editors um, after the fact essentially fuck them if they can't take a joke. And what is your favorite word? Forgiveness, I think. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. I really appreciate it as well, Mitzi. The questions are always um, so thoughtful and uh, insightful and make me think in really nice ways. So I really appreciate the time. If you like today's show with Peter Ho Davies, author of The Art of Revision, check out my interview with Chris Castellani, author of The Art of Perspective. We talked about point of view, literary strategy, and the seductive narrator. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of nearly 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. 
The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Evie Wilde, Susan Orlean, Charlotte Wood, and Thriti Umagar. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.